beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk helps us locate the winter circle in the evening sky. Jennifer Canfield shares her enthusiasm for keeping horses on the Canfield Farm in Wayne County, Damascus, Pennsylvania. In her segment, Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips shares more of her conversation with Richie Cheeger, who raises pet chickens in his Sullivan County backyard. We'll hear about predators. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. First, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. There were largely peaceful protests last night in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere following the release of videos showing the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols by five Memphis police officers. Christopher Blank from member station WKNO in Memphis reports on a night of protests there. Protesters shouted his name and closed down a bridge, a peaceful demonstration for Tyree Nichols, who died three days after being beaten by police. The January 7th incident was captured on three police body cameras and one police surveillance camera. Officers can be seen trying to pin Nichols' arms. They aim pepper spray, punches and kicks at his face. The videos came, as promised, following Thursday's indictment of the five officers on second-degree murder charges. Multiple other police and two EMTs also faced discipline action. After the videos were released, two sheriff's deputies, seen briefly in the footage, were relieved of duty pending the outcome of an investigation. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. The FBI says it's dismantled a major ransomware group called Hive. Now the State Department is offering a reward for intelligence connecting the hackers to foreign governments. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports. For months, the FBI has been hiding inside the private networks of a major criminal ransomware gang called Hive. There, they gathered intelligence to help over a 1,000 victims recover their files, saving over $100 million in ransom payments. Then, the FBI took the gang offline. However, the Department of Justice hasn't announced any arrests yet. That may be because the government is still hoping to gather more intelligence about the group, which experts say has connections to Russia. The State Department is offering up to $10 million for information about people working with the Hive ransomware gang while taking orders from a foreign government. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris hosted a summit at the White House yesterday on speeding up the removal of lead pipes across the country, The administration is committing $15 billion to the effort. Harris said Americans have the right to clean water. Many may not be aware, sadly, that it is not a right that is guaranteed to all the occupants of our country. That in many communities, families, children, parents cannot take for granted that they will turn on a tap and that clean water will come out. Exposure to lead can damage the brain and kidneys. It's especially dangerous for children. Former Vice President Mike Pence says that he takes full responsibility for the classified documents found in his home in Indiana. 
Penn says mistakes were made, and he's cooperating with investigators. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Tens of thousands of tech workers have been laid off in recent months. In an industry that once offered endless opportunity, the workforce is now battling over a small number of jobs. Competing with that market is crazy because right now it's like flip, right? The situation flip. And for those on work visas, there's a tight deadline to nab one or leave the country. That story Monday on All Things Considered from NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Jennifer Canfield shares her enthusiasm for keeping horses on the Canfield Farm in Wayne County, Damascus, Pennsylvania. In her segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips shares more of her conversation with Richie Cheeger, who raises pet chickens in his Sullivan County backyard. We'll hear about predators. But first, here's Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk Report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farming Country. For Farming Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. A circle of bright stars occupies a large portion of the southern sky in the winter. The winter circle is composed of seven bright stars spanning six constellations. The winter circle is centered around the most conspicuous constellation in the winter sky, Orion. Orion dominates the southern sky throughout the night during winter. To find the winter circle, locate the brilliant blue star Rigel on the lower right side of Orion. Travel clockwise to find the southernmost and brightest star of the winter circle, Sirius, in the constellation Canis Major. If Sirius is at the 6 o'clock position, then the next star, Procyon, is at the 8 o'clock position. Procyon is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Minor. At the 10 o'clock position lie the duo Castor and Pollux, the brightest stars in Gemini. Heading up to the 12 o'clock position is the northernmost star in the winter circle, Capella. Capella is in the constellation Auriga the Charioteer. Auriga resembles the shape of a house that we all drew in grade school, with Capella being the bottom right star of the base of a house whose roof is inside the winter circle. Continuing around the circle, we arrive at Aldebaran, the star that marks the angry red eye of the bull in Taurus. Going from Taurus to Rigel completes the winter circle. The winter circle is high enough in the southern sky to be seen around 9 p.m. and can be found in the evening sky through the end of March. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Back in May of 2022, I had the opportunity to visit the Canfield Farm in Wayne County, Pennsylvania, and spoke with Jennifer about her lifetime passion, keeping horses. For WJFF Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Rosie Starr in Damascus, Pennsylvania, at the Canfield Farm. We're going to speak with Jennifer 
Canfield. Jennifer manages horses here on the farm. So say hello to our audience and please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Jennifer Canfield and it's a pleasure to be here with Rosie. I'm here, I guess, because I have horses. (laughs) So I've had them most of my life. I was a city kid. I was born with horses on the brain to the the great displeasure of my parents. And luckily, my father wanted to have a farm up here and bought a farm in Abramsville. It was our first farm. And I was lucky enough to have a mentor who was a horseman, got me through my early stages, and then I joined 4-H. And I was lucky to be able to go, to compete in 4-H. And then because of my mentor, I was influenced to have American quarter horses. I wanted to be just like him. And uh, so I ended up breeding mares over the rest of my life. I did it for 30 years. I raised competition quarter horses and good bloodlines. I kept the foundation bloodlines that built the breed. And so now I'm left with the remnants. <laughs> and I love my horses. To me, they're they're royalty. I treat them, hopefully, as if they are. And they give me a lot of creative juices to continue with other things that I have in mind to do. And they also provide great comfort in times of stress. I also managed a therapy program for an in-house group over in Loch Sheldrake. And that was a great pleasure for people with disabilities. And I was certified as an equine specialist for psychotherapists who use horses in in therapy for their clients. And everything that horses show me is that people can benefit from being with them, whether you compete, whether you raise them for companionship, whether you study them, whether you share their, their habits with your friends. It's a great benefit to be involved in the world of horses. If you can make it happen, I strongly advise it. Jennifer, your background is very much, sounds like, is how you were inspired to be what you are right now. What keeps you going now? Because of how much I've always loved horses, I can't be without them. It's not mentally or physically possible. I have to be with the horses. I want the horses that I have left to have their lives be healthy and sound as for as long as they can be. So I will not hand them over to anyone else because there is a danger of them falling into the slaughter pipeline. And I will not let that happen to my horses. Um, I, what keeps me going is their innocence and being in an environment where you're not being judged. The horses are very accepting of their circumstances, which is unbelievable to me, and it humbles me to see how they accept what humans design for them. So I can't resist. Be, it's like an elixir. I can't resist being with them. It's beautifully put. Now, we've just come through a pandemic for two years, and in this present moment, let's talk about the challenges that you've had to overcome and what are you facing now? Well, luckily, uh, my challenge is just knowing what's going on in the rest of the world. I'm worried about the food chain. I'm worried about the supply chain for the fuel that feeds our tractors and our equipment If we can't make our own hay, we really don't know what we're going to do because we have to afford the fuel 
and the supplies and the parts when the, the equipment breaks down. And it would make keeping the horses a huge challenge for us financially. So that's part of it. And I know COVID has created part of that challenge, but it's also the, the whole world at large that's having problems. And uh, we're paying attention. You know, we're just being vigilant that we're trying to do everything uh, we can to be prepared in case hay prices are skyrocketing. Um, we're lucky because we make our own, but there are a lot of people that have to buy. And uh, that's a challenge. But other than that, we're blessed because we, we're so lucky to be near Calicoon. We can get what we need. We don't have to travel. And we have our own world. You know, I spend my days from the house to the barn and maybe to go for provisions if we have to. And we have Delaware Valley Farm and Garden right here. And I must say the new owner is incredibly good at providing any uh, substitutes for what we can't get. It's things like that, the little things that help make the whole picture better. So, Jennifer, you're, you were a 4-H member, and you are very knowledgeable about horses. Let's talk about the health of the horses at the present time. Well, environmentally, I watch for major weather events because I don't know what diseases might come across the plains and the you know, the hills and the mountains. So I'm paying attention to diseases like uh, West Nile virus. If I see a mosquito, I freak. So I'm feeding my horses an air-dried garlic that comes in tubs, and it's from Springtime Incorporated. And it's supposed to help the horses resist flying insects, not only mosquitoes, but flies naturally. I don't have to use a chemical... I do make my own concoction of fly repellent. They can get infections from some of these flies that feed on them. They can get like a sweet itch underneath their belly. And you have to make sure that you're protecting them as much as you can. Parasites are another issue. There are natural ways to worm them. And I don't always worm the horses unless I have a fecal sample to make sure that they have the parasites instead of using anything indiscriminately without knowing that they even have it. So I don't like to introduce things that may do more harm than good. And we don't fertilize our fields with any chemicals. We use our own natural compost. And that keeps me from worrying about what chemicals may be introduced to the horses. Uh, other than that, we have protection from rabies through vaccination it rabies and tetanus. I'm vigilant about any kind of small animals that come across our pastures because they can carry things like EPM, equine protozoal. I forget the last word, but it's a disease that horses can get that's very hard to recover from. Some horses never recover from it, and it's found in the urine and droppings of the small animal population. I'm watching. I'm always watching. I'm a helicopter mom. Tetanus they can get from having a cut on an, a piece of equipment or anything that might be laying around. I'm vigilant about that, you know, not to have any surfaces that have nails or broken gates, things like that. If they get that kind of an infection, they can die from that too. So they get tetanus and rabies, and the rest of it I try to use like a preventative measure instead of giving them every vaccination in the world. And as they age 
they could be more susceptible, but you want to watch their joints and make sure that they're moving correctly. If you need to supplement, you've got to do that. I balance out their meals with a, a mineral supplement and something for the omega-6s. I use ground flaxseed, which is also organic. I was able to find through our local store. All these things enter into it. And uh, weather, I try to protect them as much as I can. I bring them in during weather events. I'm lucky to have a barn that I can do that with. So a lot of people aren't. And lean-tos are fine as long as they have protection from the wind and the freezing rain. Uh, once they get that wet and that cold, then they're, they're losing energy. You have such a, an impressive bank of knowledge. Uh, do you have a complimentary veterinarian in your back pocket that you can call on? <laughs> I do. I use Dr. Joe from Youngsville. We didn't always know each other because all of my activities took me in toward Wayne County. So I was with Cherry Ridge in Honesdale, and I started with Dr. Berline when my dog had a problem with her back. And I saw a lot of vets after that. And finally, when I started working at New Hope in Loch Sheldrake, I thought, well, I can bring my dog to work. I might as well stop at Dr. Joe's and get him what he needs there. And since then, it's been a real hoot. Dr. Joe tells it like it is. And he comes for my horses. And then I see him for my dogs and my cats uh, also. So, yeah, I guess you could say he's in my back pocket, but... He's really in our pockets <laughs> when you think about it, how many times I see him. So, Well, before we close, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Is there anything in your personal life that translates to, to what you do in your daily life that you'd like to share? I think you might be a writer. <laughs> Tell us what you're working on. I am working on a book. It's about the origins of one person's relationship with horses as it relates to their life in this time and what might have been precipitated by a previous life. So I'm exploring that. But the point of the book is to explain how our relationship to horses can evolve, whether it's in this lifetime or the next lifetime. If you can do that, you find how rich that fertile ground is because horses really do teach you self-knowledge. And that's the point of the book. And I'm also a horse advocate, as you can tell. So I'm getting that in there, too. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you, Rosie, for everything you do. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. For WJFF Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Rosie Starr in Damascus, Pennsylvania, at the Canfield Farm with Jennifer Canfield. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. My guest today is Richie Cheeker, a former teacher in Fallsburg. In his retirement, he is a strong environmental advocate and keeps a variety of pets. Two dogs, three cats, two parrots, and chickens. Today he'll expound upon chickens, which he tries to keep in his backyard. 
Richie, where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn. The first 10 years of my life, I lived in Williamsburg, and then I moved to East Flatbush. And I lived there till I moved out of my parents' house once I got a job teaching. And then from there, when I met my wife, we uh, moved up here. Where do you live now? I live outside of Monticello near Forestburg. We have nine acres, and it's my own haven for animals and for myself. I love the country. I wanted to live in the country my whole life. I never liked the city. I'm with you. Okay, let's focus on chickens. Yes. How many do you have, or I should say, did you have? And were they hens or roosters, and what kinds, and what did they look like? Well, I've had up to 50 at a time. The past several years, I've had about a dozen. I had a, a lot of New Hampshires, which are my favorite breed and always have been. But I also have dark Brahmas, white leghorns, I have brown leghorns. I had Jersey Giants, I've had Light Brahmas, a lot of different breeds. About two years ago, my two roosters, I had male New Hampshire and a male Dark Brahma. The Dark Brahma, his name is Myron. I don't know how old he was because I got him as an adult, but he's been there for years and he's a very easygoing, good-natured chicken. He's a real pet. He was very good with Harry, the New Hampshire rooster. Harry was three months old when I got him, and for years they got along fine. And then one day I came into the coop, and they were bloody as you can be. It broke my heart. They were bloody, and I think Myron got some neurological damage. He's never been the same. So we got another coop for them, for Myron, actually. I figured I'd put him with a dark Brahma hen or two in a separate coop. And we bought a coop that was advertised that it would be big enough for 10 chickens. If you want to buy a chicken coop, don't buy it from Easy Coop. Don't buy it because they didn't tell the truth. They advertised 10 chickens. I can barely fit four into it. They send it as a kit. You have to build it. And I called them and I argued and they sent me back half my money, but they should have sent me back all my money. You should have had bantams. Yeah, but you couldn't fit 10 bantams into it. It's three feet by four feet. You need three square feet for a chicken. And that's the minimum. So three times four is 12. You can fit four chickens into that coop and, and it's still a little tight. It really is. But luckily, what what happened to me, I'm saved the four chickens I have in that coop. I came into the coop one night, and Alma, my New Hampshire hen, was missing a head. And this is with a light on in the coop, and I've never had a problem with a light on in the coop. Predators don't like it. I kept the chickens in, not knowing what was happening. I have an electric wire around their yard, and... I kept them in for about a week, and I went in to feed them one morning, and every single one was dead. One was missing a head, the other just were dead. We think it was a marten or a fisher, something in the weasel family. My friend, who does a lot of contracting work for me, found a hole underneath 
their nests, which are mounted on the wall. So we have to wait till the spring. Um, I'll clean out the coop thoroughly, and we'll rebuild that part of the coop, and maybe I'll get more chickens because I'd like another flock of New Hampshire's or maybe light brown leghorns. Yeah. I can't remember what New Hampshire's look like. Can you describe them? Okay. The New Hampshire was produced from the Rhode Island Reds. They are a lighter red than the Rhode Island Reds. It's, a, it's an all-red bird with some black flecking in the neck and in the tail and on the wings. It's rounder. It's a lighter red. And it, it's built somewhat differently. But there, it's an all-red chicken. Brown, actually. You can, you can call it brown because that's what I think they are. And what type of enclosure did you have or do you have? The big coop is 10 feet by 12 feet. And I used to let them run all over everywhere they want because they had a ball. They'd run through the woods. I have nine acres and they really had a good time until I found a pile of feathers and Gladys, who was a New Hampshire hen, and had the disposition of a dog. She could have been in the woods playing, and you just called her, and she'd come running to get a piece of bread or something from your hand. I found her just just a pile of feathers. So we built a fenced yard in back of the coop with electric wire around it, and it's been safe for years and years and years and now this was in the coop he didn't get through the electric part but this was a hole in the coop that he got through i had no idea it and broke my heart do you use chicken wire in your fencing or i of? used chicken wire on the bottom because sometimes if they want to set i let them have chicks they go broody, which means they want to sit and have chicks. I don't want the chicks getting out, so I've got chicken wire on the bottom, and it's just a little bit bigger. You know, the holes in the wire are a little bit bigger toward the top. The fence is about four feet high. So, so you've kind of got chicken wire at the bottom and hog wire at the top or something like it. Yeah. Did you build it yourself? No, I'm, I've got two left hands. <laughs> when it comes to... Um, Building things, I'm not good, but I do have a friend who's fantastic. He helps me and work with him, but he'll help me. I mean, if he says, hammer a nail in here, I can do it. But for me to do it myself, I'm not very good. Yeah, we had the same problem last spring, and I think it's in the spring that you get the problem because the little animals, whatever they are, weasels or whatever, mm. are smaller, and they can get through even the chicken wire. Whatever it is, it could be a raccoon or something, but it, it pulls the wire up and makes a hole. We have electric wire. With the electric wire, the predation stopped, and the chickens seemed to be fine. The only problem I had was when the two roosters fought. But now all I have is four chickens. I have um, Myron, I have his wife, Rosamond, <laughs> another dog, Brahma, and she went broody. But the weirdest thing happened. She had a bunch of eggs under her, and I think she ate them, unless something else got in there. I don't know. But what happened was the day that she was going to hatch, you know, it takes 21 days, I'm friendly with the people who own one of the feed stores around here that get baby chicks. And I got two little leghorn chicks from her, and I put them under uh, Rosamond at night, they were day old, you know, they had just hatched. 
And in the morning, they were her chicks. She raised them. She was their mother. They were her babies. And actually, they're still living together. And the two chicks are laying. They're grown hens. <laughs> they're laying. And uh, I just have those four right now. And the dogs get along with them. I only let them in my backyard. I don't let them outside of my backyard because I'm afraid they'll get killed. You know? So now you know about the joys, trials, and tribulations of raising chickens for fun. If you know a local expert on a topic of interest to Farm and Country listeners, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Jennifer Canfield, for her wisdom on raising horses on the Canfield Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania, and Richie Cheeger from Sullivan County, New York, for his compassion and enthusiasm raising chickens. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions providing tools for action and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Ari Shapiro with NPR. If you've been thinking about helping this station with a 